Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your great love for us. Thank you for the mysteries and of the gospel that you have revealed to us in your word. Thank you that your Holy Spirit has granted us faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. And thank you that you have promised that you will never leave us or forsake us and that all who ask for wisdom will receive it from you. So we pray for the wisdom of your Holy Spirit to be with us and amongst us. But as we study your word, you would give us a right understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so uh, we started, as I said, uh, chapter 3 last time, uh, which is, if you if you like, I don't know if any of you like the kind of slightly technical terms that uh, biblical scholars like to use about things, but this is known as paranesis, uh, which is the, those passages of the scripture which are, which have as their aim the instruction of Christians, the application, if you like, of the doctrine to, uh, to, uh, their particular situation. And so with this is a paranetical section. There you go. You, try, you can uh, try that at the next uh, pub quiz you attend, uh, paranesis, where having laid out the reality of who Jesus is, he now applies it to them specifically in the context of faithfulness. And so this last uh, section that we read about Jesus's, uh, he says, fix your thoughts on Jesus uh, or consider Jesus or something like that, you know, um, um, have your mind set on Jesus. And he reminds them one more time, he does one more round, compares him to Moses. If Moses was faithful in God's house, Jesus, all the more given that he is not a builder of, you know, he's not a servant in the house, but he is in fact the son. And he, uh, just again, by way of uh, uh, reminder, the reason why he makes that particular comparison uh, is evident from the uh, wider argument uh, which is that he he's addressing Jewish Christians who are being tempted to return uh, to to uh, if like turn away from Christ and return to the synagogue, the unbelieving synagogue. What in a far more polemical setting in the Book of Revelation is re- addressed as the synagogue of Satan, um, and it's the synagogue of Satan not because it's full of really nasty and evil people, but because it's the one that rejects God's Son. And we'll talk about what evil is in a moment as well. So that's the setting. And so having, having had that setting, uh, we read it last time, but we'll, let's, let's read it again from verse seven. He now turns to yet another psalm, uh, to make, uh, his argument. And I think it's very important that we, we look at the, uh, oh, we understand the, let me start again. It's very important that we notice the fact that he uses the psalms particularly as uh as the um uh, the kind of key texts on which he argues because it is you know as I, as i said at the very beginning of our study that this is a sermon this is not just a letter any old letter is this is very much a homily a sermon addressed to your congregation and this is clearly read in the context of worship and he and and, and this will become becomes um entirely blatantly clear uh towards the uh end of the letter it's 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 Undeniably the case that this 
This is to be heard and read in the liturgical setting, in the setting of worship. And of course, the singing of psalms was a central liturgical act within the synagogue and within the Christian synagogue, within the church. And and so that he's quoting, it's it's a bit like it. You see, you sometimes, uh, especially in older sermons, you have kind of sermons where which which keep quoting familiar hymns. Same kind of idea. They draw your attention to the things that they have themselves been singing, words that they themselves have uttered as part of their worship. And so, um, if I could uh, be so bold as to ask one of you to read uh, from verse seven uh, to the end. First come, first serve. I could do it. Thank you very much. (laughs) Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, uh, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried, uh, tried me, and saw my works 40 years. Therefore, I, I therefore I was angry with the with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Take thought on another daily, while it is called today, lest any of the any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, having heard, rebelled, indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? Now, with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Thank you. So that's uh, that passage. So just a reminder, that's Psalm 95. And it's the uh, within the service of Matins in the Western churches uh, known as the Invitatory Psalm. Uh, it's used at the beginning of Matins to invite people to come into God's presence. So come, let us sing to the Lord. Um, it is um, thought by scholars that this would have been uh, a standard part of the the three great pilgrim festivals of the Old Covenant. Uh, Passover, Pentecost, and, and, um, and a few booths where, and, and, and it's clearly within the Old Testament setting, Old Covenant setting, it is a psalm of approach. 
approaching God's presence, approaching God's as in hence the uh, the verses um, the verse in just after the midpoint of the psalm that comes near the end of uh, the portion that is currently sung in in the in the uh, English speaking Lutheran practice. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. Um, you know, come into his presence, come and worship. Worship meaning prostrate yourselves, bow down, acknowledge God as king, and come into his presence as if into a courtroom. So that's the setting. And uh I think that its its extensive use here in Hebrews alone would be uh, I think would be enough uh for someone to write a, a, a journal article, theological journal article to argue that this to to make um make the case that uh, early Christians used Psalm 95 uh, in their, in their, um, in their services uh, quite possibly as a sort of a standard kind of common opening hymn, as it were in the service an introit Psalm. But how is he using it here? What is the, these are the verses that have been quoted, which are come from immediately after the se- section that we sing usually in sort of Lutheran service book matins. And, uh, was it last week that I, I gave you my little soapbox performance about how, how unwise it is to cut the psalm off, uh, halfway through and, and, and just let, you know, God, if it pleased the Holy Spirit to give us his words, that it should please us to sing them, uh, even if it feels a bit odd to us. Uh, but, um, what does the, what is, what is the point being made here in the quotation and, and the sort of application of these closing verses? Well, he's uh, he's like a, uh, you know, the the way the way the people were in the wilderness, they are they are as a warning to us because because of the way they were behaving, even if they had sown all the works of the of God. Right. So, but why is he telling us that then? So, so that's that's what he's he's focusing on. Why is he focusing on that? Yes, because as human beings, we are very fickle and frail, uh, easily led astray. Right. And so, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, um, keep so easily illustrate and therefore, therefore what? Therefore we end up, um, not worshipping the true God, either through total unbelief or being seduced into a fake, sort of worshipping and fake version of God or downright idol. So what happened to the Israelites? This is, this is a sort of key thing and, and it's, it's not surprising that uh, it's in the psalm. It's not, this is not the only psalm, uh, where the unbelief of Israel in the wilderness is, is, is brought up. Uh, if you, if you took part in online matins this morning or at some point, you will have uh, read with me Psalm 78, which, uh, rehearses a very similar theme in very, in a different way. And I think you made the point last week, they, they, they were very forgetful. Yes. So if they forget, they forgot how you know God has gotten safely to the Red Sea, and then sort of, oh, now what do we do? Yes. So there, there's the whole. Oh, God. Yes, and there's a whole whole business of of forgetting who God is, and and it's the unbelief. So so unbelief, which comes out in grumbling or complaining against God, and there's a big difference, by the way, between grumbling and and. Uh, uh, or in unbelief of the sort that uh, brought Israel into so much trouble on the one hand, and then on the other hand, uh, the the kind of lamentation and complaint that we have in the Psalms or in the book of Job. 
I know it's not really the center of this text, but um, what's the difference between kind of the 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 grumbling of Israelites, which provokes God's anger and wrath in ex in during the Exodus, and the the complaining of the psalmist in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or the complaining of Job. Why is it that we have one lot of complaining held up as an example of uh, to be avoided, another lot to say, sing this uh, as, as your hymn? Verse 12 says that it led them to fall away from the living God. Well, it could, if, if we have an evil, unbelieving heart, it, it could lead us to fall away from the living God. Psalm 22 finishes with praise, doesn't it? It does. And Job doesn't fall away from God, though he does get rebuked by him. So what's the difference then in the character of the actual complaint? Uh, Is this an unbelieving complaint brought out of unbelief? Rather a cry of pain from someone who's staying faithful. Okay, good. Raya? Um, I was just thinking that the grumbling is actually basically accusing God and blaming God for what's happening. And whereas in the Psalms and Job, they are basically frank with God. And uh, so they're turning to God. They acknowledge him as the Lord. Uh, and they're sort of being frank, but you know, the grumbling, it's it, like Adam, you know, when he, when they fell, he said, the, the woman you gave to me. So basically mm. it's, uh, uh, blaming God. Okay, good. I think, I think, I think both of what, what both of you said, Eric and Ray, I think is really, really helpful. So, so one, you know, when you have a complaint, I mean, in a sense, I should have chosen a different psalm to, as an example, complaint psalm 44, because it doesn't end with praise. It begins with praise and ends with complaint, oh. <laughs> uh, which is perhaps even more striking example. But I think you're both right. First of all, that the very the very act of this of Job or the or David in Psalm 22 or whoever the psalmist is in Psalm 44 is they have a complaint concerning God's actions, and so they turn to God with it, and they demand from God righteousness, which in itself is an act of faith. And this is, I think, Erica, I think you're spot on. It's an act of faith. It's a, it's a kind of like a, like a child who trusts parents, but you said, but you said, um, as opposed to the grumbling of the Israelites, uh, which says to God, actually, I don't want this. Take me back. You now we want to go back to Egypt. Egypt's better than what you're giving us. So it's a rejection of God himself, as opposed to a complaint about the, the, this situation given what the what the person knows, the believer knows and trusts God to be like. So this can't be the end. You promised us something better. Where is it? What is it? Which is why Job doesn't get rebuked. Job gets instructed. And it's an implicit rebuke. So did I you know, basically God says to Job, When I made the world, did I need your assistance? Did I need your guidance? Do I need it now? And Job said no. Okay then. It's the people who think they know the mind of God who get rebuked. But so this is, this is, I think, an interesting, it's not really the subject of this chapter, but I think it's an important distinction to make because we too suffer. And there are times in, um, there are times for all Christians where it seems that God is far or God is 
has gone silent or that we've we've kind of you know it, it it feels like what god is giving to us is hard for us to bear and it doesn't necessarily you know said what it doesn't necessarily seem obvious to us how that's a good thing what god has given to us and it's perfectly biblical perfectly christian to utter one's complaint to god but that complaint to god is acceptable to God when it arises out of faith. And I've, I, I often uh, quote a, a very striking saying of Luther's, which he says, you know, it talks about this, knowing God's word and trusting it and holding God to it. You know, holding, it's like, you know, like holding God by the jugular. And so that if you find yourself in hell, you can say to God, get me out of here, you promised me something different. And he has to do it. Not that he, you, you know, that he'd ever end up in this situation, but hypothetically. If you know what God has promised, you can hold him to it. And he delights in that. Which is why Psalm 22 ends in praise. Or it's like Jonah, who, you know, who's, he's not exactly a beacon and, and sort of shining example of faithfulness. But while he's still in the uh, belly of the fish, he, he, uh, already begins to sing about God's salvation. Because he already knows what God's plan was. If you're going to go to Nineveh. So the small matter of being inside the belly of a fish isn't exactly going to stop God, is it? You know, he's not dead. He's alive in a pretty uncomfortable place. But, you know, God, you know, you're, he, he prays God's salvation. I think that there's the, this, that distinction. And so the key issue, therefore, is not behavior. And this is the key thing. We are, because we are creatures who uh, like to place ourselves under the law all the time. We all like to say, no, tell us what we're supposed to do. What's the right thing? What's the wrong thing? And let me do it. And we measure ourselves. We measure one another. We measure out, uh, others outside. We even measure God naturally according to the law. That's our natural default position. We therefore also assume that when we talk about, you know, well, what, what was wrong with the Israelites in, in the wilderness or what, was, what went wrong with David and Bathsheba or what went wrong with when, you know, when, when people, uh, did terrible things in the Old Testament or the New, you know, what Judah did, uh, Judas did or whatever else. We, we naturally think very much in terms of their actions. So if I say that somebody ha- somebody is an evil person, I'm guessing that your first instinct would be to think they've done something terrible. Because that's how the world thinks of these. This is a natural way of thinking. But as Jesus says, there is a, a direct uh, con- uh, relationship between the quality of the tree and the quality of his fruit. And if you have evil fruit, that means that the tree itself is already evil. Now, those the evil acts, evil works, the sins that we commit. They are simply the natural produce of an evil heart. And the question now is, what is that thing? And, and what, what went wrong with Israel? Their behavior was simply the product of something that un- was underlying that behavior. And this is this is the subject. So he talks of them. The the uh, author of uh, the writer of this letter in verse twelve, he says, "Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you 
an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. You see what he's done there? What makes a heart evil? It is unbelieving. Unbelieving. And then evil, unbelieving hearts will then lead to evil, unbelieving actions. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you start shooting people or beating your wife. It means that you do things that are displeasing to God. And they might look perfectly innocent or joyful to an outsider. But they are in fact evil because evil is the opposite of good and God alone is good. So anything that is ungodly, however nice it is, is evil. I was um, listening to a talk given some few years ago by a lady who until quite recently was uh, was one of the founders of a recently, until recently was uh, the the chief executive of an organization called Mermaids. And you, some of you might have come across Mermaids, but if you haven't, it's a charity that works essentially, my words, not theirs. Uh, it's a trans activist charity that works with schools, colleges, employers, and so on uh, to educate them about how best to support trans people. And, uh, she had to resign fairly recently and and the whole thing now being investigated for all kinds of improprieties. Um, but that talk was about her uh, the journey of her child, her eldest child, who announced at age four that he's actually a girl and God made a mistake. And she then recounts very openly that the reason why they started going down this route was because her husband thought that, oh, she and her husband thought that this boy came across very much like somebody who will grow up being gay, and he didn't like this idea that his son is gay, and so they did sort everything to do. And in the end, age 14, when he was 14, she flew him out to Thailand, and to to use medically correct terminology, uh, had him castrated. Not her words, but that's essentially what happened. And he now calls herself a she is an adult person. And if you walk past this person in the street, you probably think that he's a woman. He never have children and, uh, and, and all kinds of other things. But the whole thing she tells, tells his story very openly and says basically he, he, uh, she uses the word she about this boy. So no, she's now happy. And in the end, that's what matters, right? End of talk. So mother takes her own son in the middle of her, uh, of his teenage overseas for some, for something that's illegal here, has her son castrated and then has the body remolded as if he was a woman so that he's now dependent on hormone treatment for the rest of his life. Nobody knows what the impact of that is. Will never, will never have any, any children, cannot actually have an appropriate physical relationship with anyone. And, but that's good because now she's happy. And you listen to, and, and the, and uh, that's the end of the talk and the room responds with rousing applause. 
because it sounds right. My child was unhappy, now my child is happy. And it comes across as goodness, comes across as kindness. It arises out of good intentions and love. And yet what is it? It's an utter evil. And it's an evil that arises not out of malice. It arises out of affection and good intentions. But it's an evil that arises out of an unbelieving heart. Because instead of trusting what God has made, so when the four-year-old child says, God made a mistake, I should have been a girl. And a believing heart says, well, a four-year-old child may think that, but God doesn't make mistakes. <laughs> End of conversation. How can I help my child to feel happier? As he is. I'm giving that as a, as a, as a grim and rather extended example, because this is a topical to our time. But that's something that we all recognize. But then we start, let's go from that extreme, okay, extreme situation to situations that we might find ourselves in. And we find ourselves, I think we all find ourselves in situations where we think, mm, what's the right thing to do? I know what the Bible says, but, oh, but it just seems like it's a temptation that comes to different people in different ways. Depending on your situation, depending on your calling, depending on your circumstances. And I can, as a pastor, I can say this, you know, uh, let you in on a secret, but sometimes, you know, I, you know, as a pastor, I know, I know what I need to say to these people, but they won't like it at all, and you'll probably end up really, really badly. And so, the temptation is to be quiet or to avoid the difficult thing and hope this thing works out somehow by itself. And that's, the product of an evil, unbelieving heart, not trusting God's word, saying, actually, I need to control the situation because if I use God's word, it might just blow up. <laughs> and every pastor, I can tell you, uh, ex except the ones that are psychopaths or sociopaths and who shouldn't be pastors, ex experience this temptation, and you'll have your own version of that, depending on your vocation. And so the concern here is not their behavior. The concern is the state of their heart because this is where it all goes wrong. Because, of course, that's where the fall began. Did God really say, ah, God said that, but no, really, honestly, that's not how it is. And what does it say? She, you know, the woman looked at the tree and it seemed to, you know, pleasant to the eyes and seemed to good for food. It looked good. And it's an aesthetically pleasing moment. Look at that beautiful food. Look at that delicious looking food. Like, what's wrong with that? It'll make you happy. And it was, that was the entry of evil into the world. Just a little footnote. Let's have a little footnote here. I like footnotes. They're often the best bits of the book. Um, what does evil mean? And you're not allowed to say bad. You have to actually explain or define what, what is actually meant by what is evil. If something's evil, what is that? Is something which is very harmful either to you or to another person or to both of you, even if you have good intentions. Okay, so something that causes harm. Mm. Okay, any any other offerings? Is it the opposite of what God is? If it is, 
that answer only illuminates if we then say what God is. Is it possible that the brain of these people have been injured in any way that they can't comprehend things or they haven't the intelligence to realize how wrong their movements and their whatever they're doing is? Not always. Sometimes the very intelligent people do terrible things. It's not about intelligence or understanding. But I'm just asking what they, I'm really asking for a definition of what we mean by evil. Like what would you find in a dictionary, as it were, you know, or a, or a, well, it would say that, uh, it would be an un, absolutely unprecedented, um, action like murder or, or evil. That would be an, an, that would be an example of evil, but what is, what, what does that word actually mean? Is it rebellion against God? Okay. So rebellion against God. So we have, we've had something that causes harm. We have rebellion against God. Any, any other offerings? So just building on the idea that if it's the opposite of something that God's will, um, or rebellion against God, then you're saying we have to say then, um, what is God's will or what is God then? And, and he would be what is perfectly good, right? So evil would be anything that is the opposite of what is good. And good would be, um, things as God created them to be in their perfect state. I don't know. I'm just taking a step at it. <laughs> okay. So, so. And I think this is where you, where you sort of approach the, the line that Eric was like, I was being very mean to Eric, I apologize. Uh, <clears throat> that essentially the, the evil is defined as, as something that's opposed to God's will. Is that, is that roughly what you're saying? Mine or, um, well, no, that it's, it's just anything that is, um, that is not perfectly good as God created it to be or not, um, not ordered the way that he created it to be. Okay. Um, have you been reading Augustine recently on this? Uh, not particularly recently, but I have in the past. <laughs> okay. St. Augustine, I think, had a very good, he, he, he made a very strong argument, said that evil is not a thing. There's no such thing as evil. Evil is not like a substance exists, you know, in the, in the way that, you know, I have here a stapler and, uh, and, uh, you know, here's this calculator and, and, uh, here's a Bible and, uh, here's evil. You know, it's not a substance that exists in itself, but evil is the word that we, we, we call the absence of good. In the same way, he, and the analogy he gives, and I, I think it is very helpful, is like blindness. People who are blind don't have an extra thing called blindness. They're actually missing a thing called sight. Deaf people don't have deafness, they lack hearing. So evil is the name that we give for the gap between what God is, what is good and what actually, what, you know, what, what is good and, and, and then what we actually find. So we'll like say, you know, let's say a, a bad pianist is a pianist who doesn't play the music as it ought to be played. So the gap between what's, what the composer wrote and what actually comes out is the bad bit, badness of it. And so when it comes to uh, thinking about evil, I think we should be really careful not to just think, go straight to start thinking about uh, a murderous rapist and, and, and genocidal dictators. You know, because in English language particularly, we've got things that are bad and things that are evil, and evil is like a particular, you know, especially bad thing. The Bible doesn't really distinguish between bad and evil. It's all just one thing. And, and so 
when we say somebody has an evil heart, we're not saying they are particularly bad, not just ordinary bad, but like nasty, nasty bad. Um, so that when we do wrong, even if that wrong is just keeping your mouth shut when we should speak and nobody died and, uh, and, and everybody thinks that's perfectly normal behavior, that is evil because it is contrary to God's will. And it falls short is, is in the language in Romans. I'll come to you in a second, Rosemary. Okay. Um, language in Romans three, you know, said all, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Go on, Rosemary. Is it, it, is it a symptom then? Is a symptom of evil is, is there that it can be stopped and it can start or it can be stopped? Well, evil or it can action. be saved and not done or evil actions are the symptom of an evil heart. Yes. I think that's what I meant. Yeah. Evil actions fall from, from an evil heart and that evil doesn't again, doesn't mean that you're, you're an Adolf Hitler. It means that you're a child of Adam and Eve. And that's why I know, I, I know that some of you will have heard this so many times that you groan every time I say it, but is this the, my, 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 uh, great dislike for the, uh, for the phrase, I'm only human when we fail. Because there's nothing only about being human. Being human is to be in the image of God. And when we fail and we fall short, we are actually less than human. Is that I'm not, I'm only human, so that I'm not quite human. I'm not quite fully human. I'm not quite what I should be. You know, if I, if I, if I tried to make you a souffle and it doesn't quite rise or it kind of falls over, I wouldn't say it's only a souffle. I'd say it's not quite what a souffle should be. And in the same way, when I sin, I'm not only human, I'm just not. Jesus is only human, and that's a really good thing. So I, I just wanted to spend that time just so that we understand the words correctly, so that we get away from moralizing. And thinking everything in terms of behavior and moral categories. Morality flows from a kind of heart that you have. Trees and their fruit. So let's, let's have a look at in, in detail. So he, he begins, first of all, look at verse seven. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. So the author clearly attributes the psalm to the Holy Spirit. It is the word of God. God speaks to us. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Now, what is the particular incident that this psalm refers to? Anyone remember? It was at Mariba where they had the water. Yes, so Massa and Meriba are the two, uh, two words. So this is when they, when the Israelites run out of water and God gives them a water out of the rock. Um, and then this, this also gets repeated, uh, later on when Moses is, uh, uh, Moses, um, is also judged by God when he strikes the rock, uh, when he's commanded simply to, or command water to come out. 
And so Moses and Aaron do not enter into the, into the promised land. Now, in the, if you read the whole of the, uh, um, um, account of Israel in the wilderness, we know that it's not at this point that God condemns them to 40 years in the wilderness and not entering the, it's, it's later on when they reject, uh, God's uh, promise of the land when the 12 spies come back. So what this psalm does, it kind of condenses all of, all of Israel's uh, rebellion and unbelief into this one particular incident, which is, um, uh, Massa and Meribah in the wilderness. But, and, and this is slightly different translation from what we actually have in the Psalms because this is from the Greek, the Septuagint. So it's translating a translation. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. In the Hebrew, it says, therefore, for 40 years, I load that generation and said, there are people who go astray in their hearts. For 40 years, I loathed that generation. And the Septuagint to soften that to, to say, therefore, I was provoked with that generation. But is that that word provocation? God was provoked. What does that, you know, what, what does that mean? I mean, some, some, um, some, some translations kind of translate that as that I was angry with that generation. I was stirred to anger. What does that mean? Um, they sort of, they, they went too far. Is that, is that, that makes sense? Or too many times. Keep going, can you keep going? Which one of us? No. Both? <laughs> Either of you. Take turns. You're, you're, you're clever. You? <laughs> uh, no is an acceptable answer. No. I just need to so dig, dig a little bit into the bottom of, so what does it mean to be, you know, God, so they, they, if like they push God, as you say, you know, they, what's the expression, went too far. What happened in the wilderness with, with Israel? You know, if you think what was going on, God made them a promise and they said, I don't want that. They were, they were losing confidence in the, in the wilderness. Yes. Of what was going to happen. Yes. And yeah. therefore they, God realized that they were losing confidence. He was fed up the fact that they were doing that when he told them all that's going to happen. Yes. Good. Kylie. Um, I thought it was interesting earlier, um, when you mentioned that as part of their grumbling in the wilderness, they wanted to return to Egypt. So they're thinking of only we had just stayed in Egypt. And that was then a product of um, their unbelief. They're not trusting God and his promises in the present. And perhaps that's then parallel to this um, Jewish Christian community wanting to just return to Judaism, not trusting the promises of God in Christ. Exactly. And this is, I think, absolutely key. I think you, you put your finger on it beautifully, that it's all about actually, you know, God has led us to this place we don't like that. Can you take us back, please? We, we like our life back as it was. And what it, what it consists of is looking at the gift of God and saying, that's not a gift. I want something different. You know, that what God has given me has made my life worse. And I would like my old life back, please. Thank you very much. So it's a rejection of the gift. And when God has gone, it's, 
you know, you, you can, you can just imagine the scenario, you know, you, <laughs> um, you know, you, you, you want to give somebody a gift and they look at that and says, I don't want that. I haven't got anything better. And it's, it's a rejection in a form that insults the giver by disparaging and despising the gift. Now, when the scripture says, like Paul does in Romans 8, that all things work together for good for those who love God, what it says is that whatever God gives you can trust it to have come from a place of love and is for your own good. You know, when you were growing up, there were times when your parents said to you, I'm doing this for your own good. And you knew when you, when that never came, when they gave you a piece of chocolate or, or a cone of ice cream, did it? I'm doing this for your own good. And you know that, okay, this is going to hurt. I'm not going to like this. And God does the same in his wisdom. But what he does is he leads people and he detaches in order, you know, when he says, you know, fix your mind, uh, fix your eyes on things that are above. That involves a detachment as well as an attachment. Where we are being, we need to be prized away from the things on which our, our hearts are, are, are fixed in at affection so that they might be reattached somewhere where they actually belong. And that involves suffering. That suffering arises out of our sinful disposition. But it's a suffering that leads to good. You know, most of you know that, uh, <clears throat> that um, our daughter had a serious back operation a couple of years ago because the back, back in her skeleton was not as what it ought to be. And it was a pretty brutal process. It involves opening up the whole back, manually twisting the spine so it's the right, <laughs> it's, it's in the right shape and not in the wrong shape, fixing in that way with rods and things on that, and then sewing her back up. And then she spent the next best part of a year waiting for her body to readjust as every muscle was the wrong shape and size and that things, you know, ligaments, everything had to remove. And it was not pleasant at all. But if you asked her, would you like to go back to how you were now? I can tell you that she's very pleased that she went through the process, even though she wasn't pleased to be experiencing. The, the improvement, you know, the, there was, a, there was something that was wrong and, and the whole thing had become disordered, literally disordered and, and out of shape. And the process of putting in the right shape was painful. And I'm sure that there were moments where it felt like, you know, is this is, this is just so, so unpleasant. It would have been easy to be, have been left alone. But it was actually an act of wisdom and kindness that the surgeon did what the surgeon did. And that's, you know, that's, that's the sort of process we're talking about. And Israel had this experience where they had, they had a hard life, but really you, they knew exactly what to expect. You got up in the morning, you made bricks all day, and then you went to bed exhausted. And then you got up the next morning, you made bricks all day. But it's what they knew. There might have been a better life out there. It wasn't for them, but it was the life they had. And now God took them out of Egypt and he put them and said, okay, I'm going to give you something. You haven't seen it. And the journey is going to be hard. And I'm not going to tell you how long it is or what the route is, but trust me, it'll be good. It's worth your while. 
And what they lost was the autonomy and the control of saying, I know exactly what to expect from my life. And they had instead to trust God that wherever he was taking them, however perilous it seemed, it would be worthwhile. And then the water ran out. Then there wasn't enough food. And there were enemies on the way. And then it seemed like they're stuck in at Mount Sinai for 18 months. And like, why have we left the most fertile place in the entire Mediterranean region? Just be in this stony wilderness. If you've been to Sinai, you know it's not a, it's an impressive place in some ways, but it's not the sort of place where you like to build your homestead. Right? It's rocky and arid. And what God does is he teaches us faith by giving us nothing but. In other words, in order that we might have faith, he makes us exercise faith. It's easy to talk about faith when you don't need it. But if you don't need it and you don't use it, it doesn't grow and develop. And so God takes away our props and the things that kind of on which we rely, which are other than him so that we might learn to know him and trust in have trust in him. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was there as an instrument for building Adam and Eve's faith. So that every time they saw it, they had something other than the thing that they could perceive by their senses. They had the word of God in their ears, which said, don't touch that. And that was not God being difficult but actually God being kind, because he gave them something by, to which they could attach, uh, something that, uh, something to which his word was attached, so that they were always reminded that God's word is the thing that guides all things, not just, you know, you could eat all the things, you know, all, you could see all the gifts, but the, that the word of God ultimately is the thing that governs and guides their lives. And because they had it so good, in a sense, God gave them something. It was like the, it's like the grain of sand in an oyster that turns into a pearl. Something that stood out. So that they were shaken out of their comfort zone into remembering all the time God's word. Luther called it like the the first sacrament. It was the first thing in creation that was a physical object to which God had attached a specific word. It was a negative sacrament. It said don't rather than a do. But it was an act of goodness. And when God took people out of Egypt and said, look, he plonked them in the wilderness, he was doing the same. We're here now trusting in my word. And your future is as bright as my word is good. And this is the life to which we as Christians have also been called. And for these Christians, it was a, it came with suffering. Because as, as Kylie, as you pointed out earlier, they also were taken out of the place of familiarity and comfort which they knew, and it wasn't as hard as being a slave in Egypt, I can assure you. And they'd been taken to a place that seemed harder and less certain, less secure. And now, the preacher here, he gives uh, gives to them very direct and blunt words from God's word. Look what happened to them. God was provoked they're behaving a God, if you like, they, they tested God's patience beyond endurance. They rejected God's gift. And God ultimately let them have what they asked for. And took away the gift. 
I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Terrifying words. And they did not. They all died in the wilderness. Paul writes about this very same thing in First Corinthians chapter 10. About those, you know, not everyone who left Egypt arrived in the promised land. And he, he makes the very explicit connection to Christ. That Christ was the rock. They were baptized into Moses and Christ was the rock from which the, you know, the water came. And yet they perished in the wilderness. They all set out. They all received the promises. They didn't all arrive. And that serves as a warning. And the scripture is full of these warnings. Jesus talks about the need to stay awake. Watch therefore. The parable of the ten virgins. Paul talking about the athlete. You know, only those who finish the race receive the crown, not those who is not enough to start the race, and so on and so on and so on. And this, by the way, acts is a if ever we needed kind of convincing that the the teaching that some some Christians have that uh, is you know officially is called the perseverance of the elect or perseverance of saints, that if you are a true believer, then you cannot lose your faith. That seems to be very far absent here. It doesn't mean that we ought to be nervous or worried about ourselves. Let's see what the correct reaction is. Is take care, brothers. Watch, literally. Brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. An unbelieving heart is an evil heart because it calls God a liar. That's why unbelief is the gravest sin. Because it says God is a liar. He cannot be trusted, and what he says is good is not good. And that's why unbelief leads to all the other, every other perversion. Because unbelief says when God says is good is not good, and what God says is evil is actually good. That's why, by the way, the um, if we see um, the society around us full of immorality and perversion and corruption, we do need to speak against that, but our speaking against it is just putting a sticking plaster on it. It all arises out of unbelief. What the, what society like ours needs is the gospel. Trusting God. So when God says, I made you the way you are, faith says, well, in that case, it's not a mistake. The mistake is mine. I'm wrong, not God. And the things that I desire, I shouldn't. And therefore, I better order myself according to what God has said, rather my desires, and pray for, that he gives me the right desires. So the gospel is the solution to immorality, not just more morality. Which is why Christians, we call society, you know, we, we call people to repentance. And then the response to repentance is faith in Jesus Christ. The repentance and forgiveness of sins be proclaimed in the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus, not repentance and moral improvement, but repentance and forgiveness. But instead, so so evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Instead, what? He says, exhort one another, according to the ESV, the NIV says, encourage one another. And the reason is that they, that word means both things. Encourage and exhort. Exhorting and it's, it's a sort of, uh, 
again, the kind of the, the root meaning of that word or the kind of background to that is, is the idea is that you're calling to somebody alongside them. It's the sort of thing that an attorney does. He stands with you, or like a defense attorney, stands with you and speaks for you. It's what the Holy Spirit, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit, you know, the paraclete, the, the, the comforter, the, the advocate. And so to exhort one another, encourage one another, it's, it's, it's to stand alongside and say, no, not that, come, keep, it's, it kind of says, come on, keep going. Let's go this way, not that way. That's the idea. You're standing with somebody else and you're calling to them. You're with them. Exhort, encourage one another. And he says, every day, as long as he's called today, today, if you hear his voice, and so long as it's today. So how long is it today then? How long is it today? As long as we live. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. I mean, that's, that's the ultimate end, you know, but once you're dead, that's it. Today's over. But you may not have that long. Every waking moment? Not necessarily. It might not be that long either. Well, as as long as we are with God. What does that mean? That means that you know, if we if we lose our faith, then then the today might not be there anymore if He doesn't call us again back to repentance. It's so yeah. So as as long as God keeps calling us, so long as we still have God's word, and that God's word might be taken from us before we die, we do not have a guarantee that God's you know the God's patience with Israel did not end when they died. It ended when he said, okay, that's enough. You're not going to the promised land. That was it. And there was no more. And then they cried and they wept. And, you know, remember when they, you know, the spies came back and the people didn't say, okay, we, we, we're not going. And God said, okay, that's it. You're not going to the promised land. And they said, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. And let's go. And they went and they pick up their, their weapons anyway and went to battle and they were beaten. God said, no, you're not going. That's it. And there's no amount of crying and weeping and repenting at that point that was going to change it. Think of Saul, that tragedy of Saul. You know, that, that, that heartbreaking story of Saul. Where he kind of, you know, he, he's pathetically, he kind of hangs on to, literally hangs on to Samuel's clothes and ends up tearing, saying, please don't go, you know, don't, 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 don't leave me. And none of his weeping, none of his crying is any good anymore. God rejects him. And it is utterly, utterly tragic. And we are being warned and the, these reasons being turned in. So long as it is today, while you're still being called, while you're still being warned, while there's still time when you still have faith, where you still have God's word, there is no promise that there's a coming back. Now you, you've been warned if you now walk away, don't think that you will necessarily have a way back. So long as it's today, exhort and encourage one another every day. That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And that sin, he's not, it's obvious from this setting, he's not concerned about their moral behavior. Although, of course, sin Deliberate sin and giving way to sin is an act of unbelief that leads us away, that can lead us away from God. But he's concerned primarily about their sin in terms of trusting God's promises, trusting God's word. 
And then he does what he calls them to do. We have come to share in Christ. He's now encouraging them and exhorting them. We have come to share in Christ. We've become partakers, if you like, in Christ. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So he's not calling them to progression or a, a greater height of, you know, that it's not saying so long as you stay on the, on, on the kind of, uh, uh, on the, on the track and, and, and your performance continues to meet and exceed our expectations like your boss might do, you know, we'll keep you on the, on the board as long as your performance continues to improve. No, as long as we hold on to the original confidence. What we received in the beginning is all we need. It's sufficient. And we are simply holding on to it. Um, as it is said, and then he re repeats, if you hear his voice, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And notice that he doesn't say Today, if you hear his voice, make your heart this or make your heart that. Be like this or be like that. He says, do not harden your hearts. In other words, do not turn away. Who was the, who was the infamous hardener of his heart? Pharaoh. Pharaoh. Pharaoh hardened his heart and then we're told at some point that God hardened his heart. But he hardened his heart first. His heart first. And so when it says that, they harden their hearts. Do not harden your hearts. He's likening these rise to the Pharaoh. It's quite harsh, you'd think. That's a bit hard, isn't it? Isn't that they're running away from Pharaoh? So now you become like Pharaoh. God said to Pharaoh, let my people go or else. And he hardened his heart and said, no, I won't. And look how that ended up for them. For him. And now God says to Israel, trust me, I'll take you there. And they hardened their hearts and did not, and didn't believe him and, it ended for them like it ended for Pharaoh. Not well. Do not harden your heart. So there is no... Because again, the way that the human heart is, <laughs> you know, we, we have this... The, the ease with which we, are, we either go to pride or despair over this thing. You know, am I, is this talk about me? Maybe, am I, am I now going to, you know, have I, is my heart good enough to, to, to enter into God's rest? That's not the question. It's not saying, it doesn't say examine your heart to make sure that you're good enough still. No, you hold on to the original uh, confidence. Um, which has been given to us. It's, you know, we, we hold on to that which you were given. The only action that we can do is to turn away from it, is to harden us, to stop listening, to, to, to stop, uh, trusting what God has said. Stop letting his word be true. In other words, the only action that we might take is a negative action. And all he's saying, don't do that. Just hold on to what you have. Our confidence before God is entirely based on having faith in his promise. And there is no business in kind of measuring, setting any kind of uh, appraisal process of a professional appraisal 
you know, how are you making it? How's your progress in the faith now? Do not measure your salvation ever by your deeds, in the positive or in the negative. Always and only your salvation, uh, measure your salvation by the confidence that you have been given. That word confidence is, is kind of the idea that you're standing under the kind of, there, there is a certain like a, there, there's a truth that exists and you're standing under it. Like, here I stay. It's the kind of Martin Luther moment. Here I stand, I can no other. Yes, Freya. It says that I looked in the Finnish Bible that confidence is actually, it translates as reality, hold into the reality, which is quite interesting. Yeah. The thing, the thing as it is. I mean, is that what confidence is? Confidence is like, you know, I, I, I know how things are. You know, if you're confident in yourself, you know, I'm a, I'm a very confident speaker said, I can stand there and speak. That's the reality. You know, you, you, you're confident in somebody, you know, that somebody else can be, uh, is going to be good. You know, they, they, they say they will come, so they will come. That is, that is how it is. And the fact is that Christ died for the ungodly. That's it. He did. I'm ungodly, so he died for me. There you go. The more that I find myself ungodly, the more it is real true that Christ died for me then. And I know that I have received this thing because I've been baptized into it and God declared. You know, you are my child with whom I'm well pleased. He said so at baptism. I have confidence. That is the truth. That's the reality. That is the I, uh, that I, I know that to be the case. And all I need to do is just to keep holding on to them. Now, how do we actually do that? What does it mean? Kind of nice thing to say. What does it mean to hold our original confidence firm to the end? To completely, utterly believe in God. Why do you say completely, utterly? Well, you haven't got any way there you you either believe or you don't believe and if you really believe then you're behind everything that god and jesus have said i am i think i know what you're saying i'm 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 wary of the words completely and utterly because if we say completely and utterly then we're beginning to give it a grade like a percentage and i i am fairly confident i think i'm being rude to any of you that there is not a single person in this bible study who completely and utterly believes in god well, there's a famous sort of, you know, famous bit quote from the Gospels, I believe, help my unbelief. Yes, in other words, it's not about the quality of the faith, but rather quality of the object of that faith. We're not saved by our faith. We're saved through our faith. And it's not how well or how much you believe, but in what you believe. Or as the scripture says, I know in whom I have believed. And that's really important. You know, faith is not a thing that we have, which gives us salvation. Faith, rather, is knowing and trusting him whom we have. So your faith is not, if you like, to, to put it in kind of a slightly semi-philosophical terms, your faith is not a substance or, a, you know, that you need, or even a catalyst that you need to complete salvation you know jesus did his thing now you have your faith and you jesus plus your faith saves you no jesus your salvation is entirely in christ and to have faith is to say is to receive that and to know 
that it is for you. Hence, like we heard on Sunday, you know, faith is the 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 the, um, the ultimate faith word in the Christian faith is Amen. Basically, says, "Yep, okay, <laughs> so it is." And so, yeah, go on, Rosemary. So, all non-believers will finally be destroyed. Essentially, yes, because you're not receiving salvation. Yeah, you either, you know, you. Christ died for the ungodly, and the ungodly either receive that salvation or they don't. And faith receives it. And unbelief rejects it. You know, take, take the, let's take an analogy from, from the wilderness. For whom did the manna fall down from heaven? Which proportion of Israel was the manna sent for? The ones Moses had in the wilderness at that time. Well, how many? Who was that? The Israelites. All of were, them. All of them. All of them. Right. So, which of them got filled? They all did in the end because they didn't believe. No, I mean, which one of them got their bellies filled with manna? Was all of them. All of them. Uh, we don't actually know that, but we can infer. From what we know, that all the ones who went and actually collected it and stuffed it into their mouths. Mm. If there's anybody sitting there that thinks, I don't believe in this manner business, mm-hmm. I don't think it's real, those ones will have starved. We haven't got any record of anybody actually having done that. Mm. But it's given to all, and all who took it also enjoyed the benefit. But we see, because we see this, you know, we you see how faith works when it comes to, remember when, when manna was given, it was given every day, and they were very specifically said, collect enough for each each day, don't keep it overnight. Except on the day before the Sabbath, you will get more and collect two days worth. And we know that some of them, when they first came, kept, tried to keep it overnight. And it bred worms and stank. And then some of them went out on the Sabbath morning to collect manna. And thereby they demonstrate they didn't trust God. So the, well, some of them did not trust God to provide it the second day, just in case we're going to take some more. And some of them did not trust that God, what God had given them on Friday was going to be sufficient for Saturday, so they went out anyway. And that's a kind of good, good illustration of what faith and unbelief does. You know, God gave the gift, same gift to everyone. And those who acted in faith simply let God's word be true, say, okay, so it is, enough for each day. Like we pray, give us this day our daily bread. Once we've done that, we say, okay, that's great. Today's sorted out. And we'll pray it again tomorrow morning. Because who knows what tomorrow brings. Rather than being anxious about tomorrow. So faith receives the gift that has offered to all. Faith receives it. And unbelief rejects it. So faith is passive. Unbelief is active. And it's one of those, it's one of those paradoxes of the Christian faith. You know, when we talk about, I mean, those of you who've, who, who are into reading about, uh, theology more widely will know that one of the things that, uh, has been debated, a topic that's been debated an, an awful lot, uh, amongst different Protestant denominations is the doctrine of election. Um, and there are different theories about why is it that some people believe and some people do not believe. And essentially there are two contradic- two kind of opposing positions. One of them says, well, 
if God, if Christ died for everybody, and God wants all people to be saved, both of those statements in Scripture, um, therefore the only thing that is uncertain is people, and therefore the thing that makes a difference between a believer and an unbeliever is what people themselves choose. So you have to now go and, you know, you have to invite Jesus to be your personal Lord and Savior. You have to make him your own, you know, you have to invite him to your life. He's waiting. He's not getting the door. So, you know, please let me in. And they have to, you know, and, and then wise people let him in and unwise people don't let him in. So it's your choice. But then to, against that, we've got scripture says, you do not choose me. I chose you. So dang, that didn't work. So we can then go to the other extreme and say, okay, it's all God's choice. So some people believe because God chose them to believe. Other people don't believe because God chose them not to believe. God has determined some people to go to heaven and other other people to go to hell. And then scripture says, God wants all people to be saved. So that doesn't work either. So which is it? And it's neither. We are told one half of the story and we got told another half of the story. We're not told how the two connect. So we have told that faith is a gift of God. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. And if you have faith, it's not because you're so clever, you made the right choice, it's because you were chosen. But we're also told that what leads people to damnation is their unbelief, their hardening of their hearts, their rejection of the of the truth. So if you're saved, it's all God's work. If you're damned, it's all your work. And these two don't meet in a neat way that we can cut. So here's the logic. This, you know, just, this follows from that, follows from that, like mathematics. We're left with this paradox, this tension that is not resolved by Scripture, but it's got enough. There's enough there. If you end up, if you find yourself in hell, you got no one to. You can't say, "Well, God, God didn't choose me. God, God made me." No, you're there for your sin. You're there for your unbelief, your hard hardness of your heart. How that resolves itself, that's God's business, not ours. And we who are have received this gift of faith are warned: Do not harden your hearts. And to that end, we must exhort and encourage each other every day. And especially if we see one another struggling, however that comes. If you see people beginning to drop out of uh, regular attendance at church. If we see people struggling with faith, you know, you can hear it in their speech or you see it in their actions. So we exhort and encourage one another every day. And better still, as we discussed last week, a bit of preemptive action wouldn't be too bad. That we actually encourage and exhort one another before there are problems so that we strengthen one another. And how do we do that? What does it mean to exhorting one, encourage one another? We constantly draw each other towards Jesus. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And what does the voice of God say? The verse just before uh, those warning words in the psalm is, for he is our God, we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. In other words, the voice that you hear is the voice of promise. So don't harden your hearts, hearts against the promise. Against the goodness, against the gospel. <laughs> and we've got this rhetoric. Yeah, go on, Rosemary. Well, it's very lucky for people that are in Christian believing families and not so easy for people that got people that disbelief and try and break the word that you've been told. And it is difficult to, to, um, 
with people with unbelievers as family um yes it's i mean if you are surrounded in your daily life by the christians by your circumstances you are indeed richly blessed Mm. and all we we talked about this last time a little bit didn't we you know that if and there are people who are not and others need to you know in, in a sense to take it upon themselves you know, we, we, we owe to one another as Christians and members of the Christian family, the church family to do that, to look after one another. And people who live, who are not surrounded by the believers are the ones we particularly need to encourage. Yeah. Now we've got this at the end of the chapter. We've got these rhetorical questions. Who are those who heard and yet rebelled? And he wasn't the, Nasty Egyptians, he wasn't uh, some, some, some terror lot. Was he not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? No, it was the ones who received the promises. Those who had seen God's work, those who had received not only the promise, but had actually received the reality or at the beginning of the reality, who'd set out on the journey. With whom was he provoked for forty years? Was he not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So everybody was left led out of Egypt. But those who sinned, that is those who rejected God's promise, and those who were disobedient to his promise, those were the ones who fell in the wilderness. Now apply that to, sorry, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Not behavior, unbelief. And this is actually quoted, um, this, this, this passage is quoted in the Book of Concord, in the formula of Concord, um, and two different, or in the Book of Concord in two different places. Um, one, once to defend the, uh, the Lutheran position against the papacy that we are indeed saved through faith alone. That the thing that stands between salvation and damnation is faith in the promise. And, also on the doctrine of on the on on a, an article in the doctrine of on the doctrine of election, which highlights that our perseverance in our election, if you like, is a matter of faith in the promise and not just some not some kind of divine decree, um, inscrutable decree, where some are um, elected for damnation, others for salvation, but rather those who hold on to the promise are the ones who persevere because God work, you know, God's Holy Spirit works through the word. It's not some kind of thing that, you know, God's done his bit. Now we hang on, uh, you know, he, he flies the helicopter is up to us to hang on to the undercarriage, but rather that when we hear the word, it is through the word that the Holy Spirit works. So long as we do not harden our hearts and, and reject it and say, no, I, I don't want that. I don't believe you. I want something different. And so we have two kinds of people, those who left Egypt and those who did not leave Egypt. And to all who left Egypt, the promise was offered. But of those who left Egypt, there are two kinds of people, those who believed the promise and those who did not believe the promise. The number of those who believed the promise was exactly two. (laughs) And everybody else fell in the wilderness. 
including Moses and Aaron. Only Joshua and Caleb enter the promised land. So how does that apply to us as Christians? You're saying that some of us will fail at the end? No, it doesn't say that some of us will fail in the end. We've got to learn the lesson of what, it's a lesson for us all. And what is that lesson? The lesson is always to believe the word of the Lord and to try and behave in the right way. Not behave, scrub, scratch out the last bit about behavior. We're not talking about behavior, we're talking about belief only, faith only. Well, okay, that's what I meant really. Yes. I'm not saying that behavior doesn't matter, but that's not what we're talking about here. That is not the deciding factor. Behavior has an impact on faith, but that's we are talking about the heart of the matter now. Behavior comes out of unbelief. Or not all faith. Well, right, in First Corinthians 10, as I said already, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all at the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So all received the gifts, most were God, with most God were displeased. And it says, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat, uh, eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, this is the application, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This is a word that we need to hear when we are either getting really complacent and stops, you know, we are complacent and we think that we do not, we know we will, we'll be fine. Nothing can go wrong with us. So if you are one of those who say, I'll be fine. I don't need to, I don't need to worry about this. Take heed lest you fall. You think you're standing? Be careful. And this is what we need to hear when we, when we are struggling and suffering and when we feel tempted. that he is faithful and he will not let us fall. He will provide a way out of temptation. Either way, our gaze needs to be on him and our ears need to be firmly glued to his promises. And the simplest, shortest application of this whole principle, of his whole teachings are the words of Jesus as recorded at the end of Matthew's, uh, at the end of Mark's gospel. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved but whoever does not believe will be condemned. We've all been baptized into Christ, not into Moses, but into Christ. We have all received the promises. All that Jesus has done for, he has done for us and all that he has done for us has been delivered to us. And so, 
the Christian life consists of holding on to that, keeping, as I say, keeping our ears glued to God's word, letting his word to be the truth. Let it be the truth about our sin, that it is indeed forgiven, but also that it is sin. Let it be the truth about our standing before him, and also let it be the truth about what our life is really all about. You will not make a drunk happier than you do when you give him a bottle. But ask yourself, is that person truly happy? Do they know what happiness is? If you take your child to be mutilated to make them happy, do you know what happiness means? And when your body and your mind tempt you to sin and you give in to that sin and that makes, makes, is that, have you found happiness? Our happiness consists of the knowledge of God and of his love in Jesus Christ. And that means that we constantly have to be torn away, painfully torn away from the other things that to which our hearts are attached, to trust in God, to hold on to these promises, is, is to say yes when God says yes, and to say amen when God speaks, knowing that he give, will give to us not just some sort of happiness, as the world knows it, but eternal bliss in his kingdom. And however long the wilderness wandering on the way there might be, and however hard it might be, and however much it might seem like a bad idea, we know that he gave his son to die so that we might have it. And so it is the one prize worth having. And there is, you know, it's the it's it's pearl of, of, of great, great price. And there's nothing else worth having besides it. Final thoughts, reflections, comments. If babies are baptised mm-hmm. and then they don't believe, is there any help in them going to the Lord even if they were baptised? They've got to believe as well, haven't they, as they get older? Whoever old. believes and is baptised will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. Yeah, so there's no so way... Whether you're baptised as a baby or, or at some other point, the, what all believers or all Christians mm. need is baptism and God's word. Yeah. They need to be instructed in the faith... That's why, like, when, when, for example, when we do outreach or evangelism amongst people who are not believers, we can't really effectively evangelize anybody until we discover, uh, first find out, are we talking about somebody who's baptized or somebody who's not baptized? So to preach a gospel to the unbaptized is to bring them to be baptized into Christ, like the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, whereas if you're preaching to somebody who's been baptized but has no faith, you're preaching them, you know, you're, you're, you're preaching the gospel to them to bring them back like the prodigal son to what they have given up and lost. Two very different, two different things to do. To me, it has been again a good reminder of what's already been said, you know, the faith, um, God's word is the basis for faith. Because uh, very often I think that if, you know, the Israelites saw all these fantastic things, God appearing in the Mount of Zion 
and they had the you know the food coming to them everything you know, fantastic things and nevertheless you know they just uh, did not believe mm. so it's uh, it's a good reminder that you know i mean wonders and science are there wonderful to affirm your faith but they are not the basis of uh, and we should really should not seek them and and who knows how many wonders is happening around us we just don't see them yeah, we oh, we take for granted. Exactly. We take for granted all the time. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I've told told you as and as some of you before, but you know, um, a conversation I had with a with a, with somebody who uh, you know, said, you know, somebody somebody asked me recently, you know, why why doesn't God do any wonders and miracles anymore? And my conversation partner burst out laughing. Doesn't he? You know, there's so many we just don't notice them necessarily, and how many dangers have we have we avoided without even realizing? But you know, we, when you think of the amazingness, I was just teaching the uh, catechism this morning to a youngster, and we talked about the first article of the creed. I believe that God has made me in all creatures, given my body as well, my eyes and all my members, my reason, my senses, and all. Still takes care of them. He gives me also gives me clothing, shoes, food, and drink, house and home, land, animals, all that I have. He daily and richly uh, provides me with all that needs to support this body of life. Sheaths me from danger, guards and protects me from all the evil. All this he does only out of our partly divine goodness and mercy, without any merit and worthiness in me. For all this, I owe it. To thank and praise heaven and obey him. You know, you think of all the things that you've got, starting with the world itself. You know, where you come from and all, you know, all that you have and everything can be traced right back to God's creation. I gave it to you. Why? Because he decided that he wanted to. So if somebody gives you a gift, what do you say? Say thank you. <laughs> you know, and, 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 and this is one of the things that I think we sometimes underrate and it's, it's something that's been on my mind a lot for the last few months. It's just how crucial and central thanksgiving is to our faith. Faith says thank you because it recognizes the gift. And saying thank you encourages, strengthens our faith because it draws our attention to the gift. So when you start thinking, you know, when you start thinking about what you have and where it's come from, to acknowledge that it's a gift of God, you, you must say thank you. But then if you start saying thank you for things, you begin to realize just how much God has given to you. So what, 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 what should I be thankful for? You know, I'm currently warm. I don't know about you, but I'm warm. I'm comfortable. I've got a nice drink here and somebody made it to me, for me. And none of these things did I procure by myself. There's a, um, um, an article that somebody, an economist wrote some years ago. Um, and it was something along the lines of, yeah, who can make a pencil? Take an ordinary, just ordinary old fashioned pencil. Said so there's not a single person in the world who can make a pencil. Nobody knows how to make a pencil on their own. So all the things that it takes to make a pencil, it requires an international effort by a large number of different people because the people who grow the wood and cut the wood down and the people who make the paint and the people who make the little crimp that holds the rubber and the people, you know, all the things, there's not a single person in the world who can do that on their own. <laughs> You think of like, I know that's just a pencil. I think of your life. Where has it all come from? What does, what has God placed into your life? Whether you live on your own or with live other people, all the people and the network of people, the fact that you can go to a shop and just take something off the shelf. You take a tin of beans. You can't, you can only afford beans and you take a tin of beans and what an amazing effort so that you can go to a shop and pick up that pin of beans and buy for a few pence. Wow. What a gift. You know, the vast majority of world's history would have given their right arm to live like that. 
instead of the, the efforts they had to go to do in order to feed themselves. You know, but God is full, so full of goodness. And the more that we draw our attention, you know, more that we look for it, the more we find it. And the more that we find it, the more our hearts will grow in love toward it. Anything else? Anyone else? If not, we shall close with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for all the wonderful things that you you have given to us. For our daily lives, for our very existence. But we thank you especially for giving us Jesus Christ. And for giving us your word through which you have made him known to us and through which your Holy Spirit has given us the gift of faith. Please forgive us all our unbelief and all the evil that flows out from our unbelief in our daily lives. Encourage us by the promise of your gospel. Fasten our hearts in faith to Jesus through your word that we would not harden our hearts but hold on with firm confidence to all that we have received in him. Teach us to encourage and exhort one another. Be the helper of those who struggle with doubt and unbelief, for those who suffer for the faith, for those who are tempted by the broad highway of this world that leads to damnation. Gather to yourself all those whom you have called, and we pray also that in mercy you would constantly open ways for your word to reach into the lives of those who do not yet know you, that they would come to share with us in this wonderful inheritance. Keep us faithful until death, that we may receive the crown of life. So may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.